Hey there, before we start the show, I just wanted to give you a content warning. This episode deals with sexual themes and isn't appropriate for younger listeners. That said, I'd like to also add that unlike the last couple of shows, there is nothing explicit in this one. Thanks. It's kind of overwhelming. It's a very large building, very old brick building. It must have been a mansion at one time. I think they told me it was a mansion. It had big old furniture, you know, like like you'd see in a mansion, you know, big stuff, couches and chairs. There was bars on the window. And I don't know if that was to keep us in or keep them out. <laughs> it wasn't a really safe neighborhood either at the time. At that time, you didn't want to be wandering around. You walked into a hallway, and there was a staircase that was right in front of you that you could have gone up to where there was bedrooms and stuff up there. Next to the stairway was an elevator. It was like a cage. And then there was a little hallway where there was a phone on the wall, and you could use that phone. That was your own. You didn't have phones in your rooms, and you didn't have cell phones that you could carry everywhere you went. And people could call you, too. They'd give you a call. Barbara. Barbara G. uh, Barbara, Barbara R phone for you. We weren't allowed to use our last names. I could be Barbara R. But that's it. I was Barbara R. Everybody knew me as Barbara R and Sally B or whatever you were, but nobody had last names. I never kept in touch with any of them. For some reason, you just don't. That's a shame. I would love to see some of them again, see how they did. They had this big living room, like, where you could sit, and they had a piano. And this woman was playing the piano, and she was playing Claire de Lune, which has always been my favorite song. It was just beautiful. She was a very fantastic pianist. And I sat down right by the piano. I just sat on the floor right next to the piano so I could really listen really close. And I just cried. Yeah, it's terrible to go through that alone. And a lot of women do. Girls, women, you know, it's all theirs. You did it. You got it. The man can walk away. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love & Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Reunion, featuring Barbara Gagno. Gosh, how do you explain what it's like? Well, you don't only want girlfriends, you want boyfriends. <laughs> you don't want to only just hang around with girls, you want to have, be around boys, too. I met the boy that lived a couple blocks away. He asked me for a date, and we started going out. When you say going out, I don't even remember where we went. I don't know what we did. Probably movies, that's about all you did in those days. You went to movies. We didn't go dancing or anything. You know, he wasn't a dancer, I wasn't a dancer. So I guess we just kind of went to movies. And then my parents worked nights. So I wasn't supposed to have anybody in the house, but he was in the house. We would watch TV, you know, and then uh, you start necking, you know, and then you get into trouble. And that's how it all began. When, when did you guys have sex? When he was there. <laughs> what kind of question is that one? Whenever we could, I guess. I don't know. I don't remember that far back. I really don't. I wish I could help you out, but I don't remember it. No. You gotta remember, I'm 80 years old. 
I'm lucky I still remember what sex is. <laughs> My mother approached me one day and said, uh, are you still getting periods? Because you're not using anything in the, in the box anymore and I'm using it all, so what's going on here? And it was an accusation. My father was not a happy person. He actually took off his belt and beat me because he just, what are we gonna do now, you know? And they just were furious. It's understandable, but I mean, you know, that was their reaction to it. They didn't know what to do. They had a powwow with his parents, said what they were gonna do about this. So we went upstairs to my bedroom to talk about what we thought we were gonna do. And we, we had, well, we were gonna get married and we were gonna raise the baby. You know, that, that's how you think when you're 15 and 17. That's all I ever wanted to be was a mother and a wife. You know, I never had any aspirations to be a movie star or a career woman. My career was going to be raising my family. We went downstairs and they had very different plans. They thought the best thing to do would be to have an abortion. And this way nobody would know, it'd all go away and everything would be okay. And I said, no. And they said, well, then you're going to give it up for adoption. That's your choice, one or the other. Where, where would I go? I couldn't stay home because then the neighbors would know and everybody would know. So they went to Salvation Army and they suggested that they put me in um, Florence Crittenton maternity home. Do you remember when you first started showing? I was probably about four months pregnant. Because I was thin, you know, so you show pretty easy. If you're a fat girl, you know, you can hide it for a long time. You just think you're getting fatter. Now today, instead of wearing smocks like we did to hide it, now they're talking about their bumps. Everybody's got a bump. We weren't allowed to have bumps. We had to have smocks. My parents would come and visit me occasionally, rarely. My dad would drive my mother there, but he wouldn't come in. He didn't want to see me. And did your boyfriend come see you? No, never. He was not allowed to. His parents wouldn't allow him to come. In fact, they bought him a car to stay away from me. He'd call up on the phone once in a while, but that was about it. So I never got to see him. So I was traded in for a car. But you could go out when you wanted to. I mean, if you wanted to go to a movie, you could. It's not a jail. It's just a place of security to stay in, you know, where you get your meals and and uh, you're taken care of. There were some really nice people there. I mean, just people that got pregnant, that's all, you know, and didn't want the world to know. I was the only one that was 15. I was 16 when he was born. Never been through childbirth, have you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun. Ay, ay, ay. Did you feel prepared? Oh yeah, yeah. I felt I knew it was gonna I knew it was gonna hurt. <laughs> it must must not be too bad. I've had three more after that, so it didn't kill me. As I was in my room having labor pains, you know, in the in the hospital, this Mexican woman was down the corridor and every time she'd have a pain she'd go, ay, 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 ay. And every time I think of that about people in labor, all I can think of is, ay, 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 you're supposed to do that when you have a pain. <laughs> I probably just said, oh. <laughs> I don't remember screaming or crying. I just remember just trying to get through it the best I could. It was hard because you know that that's going to be it. You know, that this is, you're glad that it's going to be over with, but you know that this is the end. You'll never see him again. I think the worst part was knowing that I couldn't hold him or I couldn't ever, I couldn't see him after he was born. I just saw him come out and that was it. And off he went. 
they just bring them out of the, the nursery and hold them in front of you in their arms. They don't offer you to hold them. They don't want you to hold them. They're so afraid you might change your mind. The agency is waiting there for that baby. You know, they've already got them planned for somebody else. But they just held them, and I just looked at them. And they said, say goodbye to your son now. Say goodbye to your baby. And I just cried and walked away. There's nothing else you could do. You grieve. You know, it's just like somebody dies. You know, you grieve. You're just this heavy burden of the fact that you've lost. You've lost your baby. You've lost your your son. You know, you'll never you'll never know him. But I can remember saying to him when they brought him to show him to me after the you know after he's born. I says, I'll see you again. Someday I'll see you again. What was your life like after that? Sad. You know, it was just, I didn't go back to school. I was a sophomore. I figured everybody knew I was pregnant. I wasn't going to go back and face all those kids. I went and stayed with my aunt in California for about six months. A friend of hers uh, asked if I could babysit because they were going out, and my aunt said I would be glad to. And they had three children, and one of them was a baby. And I never want to put him down all night long. And as I was holding him, and I thought, what would it feel like to even breastfeed this baby? I didn't, but I thought, what would that feel like? What it would have been like if I had kept my baby? And that's all you can think of is baby, baby, baby. You can't get it off your mind. I got married when I was 18. And I had my first son a year later. And I had two daughters after that. It's not easy when you're 18, because I had 18, 20, and 22. You know, they were all two years apart. Was your the son that you had put up for adoption, was he on your mind in these years? Oh, always, yeah. His birthday, of course, you know, that's that was always a day that was sad for me. And uh, I never talked to my husband about it because it wasn't a subject that he liked to bring up because he didn't like the idea that I had had a baby before I met him anyway. So it was kind of my secret. You know, I kept it to myself. I was happy, but I ended up getting divorced after many years of marriage. It wasn't a blissful marriage. (laughs) It was one that I thought probably was going to make me feel better. So I don't think I was fair to him. I saw a woman on TV being interviewed on TV. It's an emotional day for Chicago native Kathy Malcolm. And she had just found her birth family. From the moment I heard this woman's voice... I felt like a different person. I felt connected to the rest of the universe. And I I wrote down the number of the group that she had used, Truth Seekers and Adoption. So then I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to look for them. They don't get the records because the records are sealed. But I had some non-identifying information from the cradle, which is where he was placed. They were really good at doing what they did. So I found him within a matter of months. That's all part of the healing process, too, is doing that search yourself and getting that information and taking it at your pace, not somebody else's pace. You have to go at your pace. You think you might be ready for something that you're not ready for yet. Do you, what, what do you want to call him? Do you, do you want to, what name are you comfortable with? Mitch. Mitch? Okay. Not because he never wanted to be identified. When I did find him and I did call him, 
I said, I don't know if I've got the right person, but were you born and blah, 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 blah. You know, and I mentioned his birthday and he says, yes. And I said, well, I think I'm your birth mother. And he said, I always knew you'd find me. And I said, that's funny. I always thought you'd find me. I've been waiting all these years. <laughs> and that's how our conversation started. I invited him to come over to my house. My daughter, one of them, Donna, calls me and she said, Mom, can I come over when he comes over? I want to meet him too. I says, not tonight. I says, this is my night. And I said, I don't want anybody there. I says, you can have him later. <laughs> I says, but right now, I want him to be all mine. The hours can't go fast enough. It just, it just drags sitting there waiting for that doorbell to ring. You like pace the floor. You don't know what to do with yourself. You just don't know what to wear. You know, it, you feel like you got to dress up for this, like you're going to a prom or something, you know, like this is such a special day. It's a long time to wait, 26 years. He pulled up alongside on the street, and Bob was looking out the window. <laughs> he, uh, Bob says, he's here. He just pulled up. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> Rang the doorbell. I went to the doorbell. I opened the door, and he's standing there, and I said, oh, my God, you look just like your father. He was thin, wore glasses. <laughs> wasn't exceptionally, uh, strikingly handsome, but he wasn't ugly. So that was good. He didn't look like my other children, who had a different father anyway. So he came in, and we had dinner. And then Bob was kind enough to say, he said, I'm kind of tired. I'm going to go to bed. And it was early. It was like 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, something like that. And I was so glad that he did. And he did it because he knew he, we needed to talk to each other. He was an art teacher, very, very talented. And... Uh, he was friendly, outgoing, single when I met him. Yeah, we had a lot. He told me about his family. He wanted to know about the kids. And I brought out pictures to show him, you know, his brother and sisters. And I think he stayed till like, oh, it had to be 2 o'clock in the morning. We were still talking. And then I walked him to the car, and we talked again for another half hour at the car. It was like we couldn't say goodbye. I, I just didn't want to let him go again. You go, and I'll never see you again. It's such a burst of feelings. It's like an explosion. You start out thinking, like, my baby, my baby, my baby, my baby, and then you realize, hmm, he's not a baby anymore. This is a grown-up man here. Now how do I deal with the man? You know, the baby I could have dealt with. You know, but the, the man is harder. You, the baby you can hold in your arms and you can, uh, you can hug. You can't do that with the man. Fourth of July, he was over at the house one time. And Bob was at the firehouse, so uh, it was just the two of us. We were outside sitting on the porch, and then we came into the house. And we were just talking. Then he said he was going to go. He was going to go home. And I kept saying, oh, don't go, don't go. I don't want you to go. And I was feeling really shook. You know, I, I was like he was going to go, and he wasn't going to come back. He kept looking at the clock. Well, I got to go. Well, I got to go. I got to go. And I didn't want him to go. So I said, oh, because you know, he didn't say what time he was going to, but I got to go. So I took the hand on the clock and I just stopped it. And I got real emotional. And he got scared and he ran. He jumped in the car and he went. And I thought, oh my God, what did I do? And I scared him away forever. <laughs> but I was just feeling so much emotion for him and all I could do was cry. The more and more I got to know him, the more stronger my feelings got and the more I was starting to feel really weird. 
If I could only hold him, if I could only hug him, if I could only touch him. But then I, I can't touch him. You know, I can't, I don't know how to just grab him, hug him. You know, it just didn't seem natural. You think about it and then, then you try and get your mind off of it as fast as you can. <laughs> He'd sit on the couch and I would maybe throw my legs over him. And I thought, oh, is he uncomfortable with that? Very uncomfortable with that. So I thought, I am getting way too familiar with him and he's getting way too uncomfortable with this. And I was getting uncomfortable with him. I said, why am I feeling this way? I'm feeling feelings I don't want to feel about him. This doesn't seem right. He's my son. He's not another man. Every time I'm with him, I don't feel like I'm with a boy. I feel like I'm dating somebody, you know, and I want to be with him. But I was. I was starting to feel sexual feelings for him. When you first start feeling like this, you think, boy, there's something wrong with me. Why would I feel like this? It was, it was awful. It was spooky. It was frightening. Thought I must be out of my mind. This is crazy. What kind of oversex freak am I that I would feel this for my son? Can you explain it? <laughs> I don't know. I can. Uh, it's a feeling of want to be sexual with this person, want to touch them. It's actually a feeling sometimes of wanting to breastfeed just because you never got to do any of these things. You never got to hold this child. You never got to feel their skin against your skin. And it's all of that wrapped up into that. It's hard to even put into words, to tell you the truth. And then you feel, I can't wait to see him again. I can't wait to see him again. It's just like you do when you're in love with somebody. I fell in love with him. How did you get over feeling crazy and ashamed? Like, how did you work up the courage to talk about it? I don't know. I've never been one that you could stop from talking about anything that I really felt. I always figure there's somebody out there in the world that's going to understand it. And if they don't, they don't like it and they don't want to be around me, they'll, they won't be around me, you know. So I've never been afraid to say what I think. Sounds shocking, but it happens. And we're going to meet people who have felt these kinds of feelings. And it's all next right here on The Mari Povich Show. For years, I was being interviewed by this one and that one on different TV shows because that was such a unusual subject. Not that it was an unusual thing to happen, it was an unusual subject for anybody to talk about. Barbara Gagno put her son up for adoption in 1952. 26 years later, guess what? They were reunited. Shortly thereafter, Barbara found herself to be sexually attracted to her own son. Oh. Yeah, that, you, were you surprised at that response? I guess I am. I'm always uh, unaware that people have not heard this and that they're so shocked and disgusted by yes, it. Yes, we are. You know yes. why? Mm -hmm. Because sure we I do. think of, well, yeah, because... The, it's a taboo. Maybe the worst, right? Yes, it is. Who was going to go out there and actually get on the, in front of a camera and say, I'm sexually uh, attracted to my son? You know, you got to be nuts. So they must have said, here, here's somebody that's nuts enough to say it. Not much sympathy here for No, I know that. No. Not at all. Mm-hmm. People would look at you like, Oh, that's disgusting. And I thought, I'm sorry, that's the way it is. You know what they're whispering over here? You're sick. The woman's sick. Sick. That is really sick. She's sick. Let me, uh, let me, uh -oh. I want to find, <laughs> I want to find someone in our audience who, when we first started this several minutes ago, said, boy, what kind of craziness is this? And now, since we've come to the end of this segment, feels, okay, maybe it's all right. No? You still have great misgivings about this person. Are you surprised at that? 
Okay, we'll be back right after this. A world 200 years more advanced and 200 years more dangerous. In 2193, the world's most notorious fugitives escape. 200 years into the past. Now, in 1993, there's only one man who can stop them. I'm going back. A cop from the future here to hunt them down. Time tracks. A new night of television premieres January 20th on Channel 50. Okay, you're, you're not any more understanding now than when you heard Barbara's story in the beginning. Now, no, not at all. She never did anything. I know, but she would have, I think, that if he had been agreeable to it, if he had felt the same so way. So the only reason they didn't do anything was because he didn't want to. Absolutely. Barbara, do you believe that? No. No, because I, you know, you have to have boundaries, and if the boundaries aren't set up, I was so terrified that I would have lost my relationship with him totally. I, I would not have done anything. I don't think you had anything. any boundaries at the time. Oh, I did. Why? Why do you think that? Because she said that she was sexually attracted to him, she wanted to touch him, and I think that if he had agreed to it, I think it might have gone further. I don't think so. So, in effect, in your heart, you wanted to commit incest. In my heart. I don't, you know... I mean, the I, same way that the famous Jimmy Carter line, you know, I lust in my heart. I mean, I lust in my heart for you, too, but I'm not going to do anything about it, you know. <laughs> Well, what's about your husband? How did he react to this? I mean, where's the compassion for your husband? How does he feel? My husband probably... Oh, I shouldn't say this. I probably... Well, say it. <laughs> I, we probably had... Be, we probably had the best time of our marriage in, in that particular time. Because you were more honest all with my, each other? No, all my frustrations were taken out on my husband. Oh. He was a very lucky man. Do you remember when Barb told you about the weird feelings that she was having? I don't know if she ever told me. Did you? Oh, I, don't, I, I don't know if I sat down and told you or you... No, I don't think it was there. Right, I, 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 the, the, the only thing is when she was uh, giving them lectures and, and then going to write a book, and I, underst I, I understood what it was. I understood exactly what it was. They lost all the mirrors and never got the cuddle, never got the hold or something like that. Yeah, I remember you asking me one time, would you go through with it? And I said, absolutely not. Did I say that? Yes, and I said, absolutely not. Boy, I was inquisitive. And if we can't be open about this, it, all we're doing is shoving it under the rug like it doesn't exist, and it exists. It's we had meetings monthly from Truth Seekers and Adoption, and I led the meetings, and I would bring it up. And when people call us, what we do is explain this to them, and they say, kid, I'm here. You know, you've got to be some kind of horny old lady to be talking about things like this. First of all, and they I think I'm nuts and there's not, no way, not me, no way would this ever happen to me. And then they're very surprised when they find out that it does. Then the more and more I start talking about it to other people, they were coming to me. When I met my, my birth mother, I certainly had this curiosity, you know, what does it look like? I've gone through a physical attraction with my sister too, needing to sleep with her and hug her, and she with me. For some boys, they have to love their mother first to be able to love another woman. And the adoptive mother is a love in one way. That's a relief to know that you're not the only person that feels like they're nuts. As a matter of fact, I've only told this to one other living person. Do you feel safe telling me that? I do feel safe telling you. And I'm very glad that we're talking about it. I'm very glad. One more thing. 
email me, they call me on the phone. I'm feeling the same things you are. I don't know what to do. And I would say, well, try and come to the meetings as much as possible. We'll talk about it as much as we can so that you don't have to go crazy over it, you know. I says, you just have to work through it. So what did that work look like for you? Just knowing it couldn't be done. I couldn't have sex with him. I couldn't hold him. I couldn't kiss him. Even just to hug him. I was even afraid to hug him. <laughs> and in fact, I didn't hug him when I first met him. It must have been about the 10th time, I think, that he came over to the house. And he says, if you're never going to hug me, I'm going to hug you. I said, okay. And then I never wanted the hug to stop, but it did. And we didn't hug anymore. That was the last time we hugged. That was the last time? The yeah. first and last time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was at a conference, and this girl was talking about her brother. And she's, oh, I just met my brother. And she's, oh, I can't believe what I'm feeling about him, she says. And I was riding on the back of the motorcycle, holding him around his waist while he was driving. And she says, oh, I had this terrible genetic sexual attraction for him. And I thought, that's a good term for this. That's what it is, a genetic sexual attraction. There's certainly a possibility that being genetically close to somebody would make them more attractive to you if you are not brought up in close contact with them during your childhood. Because you shared the genes, you would recognize something of yourself in the other person. It's misplaced love. You never got to go through the steps raising that child. I think it's very understandable because the boundaries that would be in family life, which would preclude having incest, aren't there. All of that deprivation that you had from ever being able to touch them, to hold them, to watch them grow. And now you're getting the the finished product. It's clearly incest by definition in that it's sexual relationships between people who are very closely related genetically. But from a social perspective, it's not incestuous. I talked to so many people after that happened to me and I felt those feelings. I don't know how you don't have them. Up to 50% of people, when they reunite, can experience it. It seemed to be actually really quite, you know, normal. Somebody had asked me to write an article about genetic sexual attraction, and I decided to do it, and then I thought it would be a good chance to show him the article and ask him to read it and see if he would give me any feedback on it, telling me he felt the same thing. I wanted him to read it and say, yeah, I feel that too. I can still picture the apartment. He lived uh, above a store in Arlington Heights, and I'd go over there and visit him once in a while. Typical bachelor apartment. There were no feminine touches, no curtains, just a bed, a TV, a lot of books, just living alone as a single man. So as he's reading this article, and I'm talking about how I feel about him, afterwards I said, what do you think? And he says, you're talking about me here. And I said, well, what do you think? Yeah, that's very well written. He didn't, he said, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. You know how it would never have happened? If I would have known him all his life. That's why I want to open adoptions. That's why. If I would have given him to another family, but yet I knew where he was, how he was, who he was, I would have watched all the stages of growth I wouldn't have gone from a baby that I never got to hold to a man standing in front of me. We got to let people be in each other's lives. 
because you're carrying all the genes from those other people. You know, you're like those people. I can see why adopted parents would be... Oh, they're frightened. They're scared to death. Not even frightened, but like they didn't sign up to adopt a child and the parent. And the parent. <laughs> right. No, I don't want you to adopt the parent too, but have some kind of connection with the parents even. Even if it's not with the child, have it with the parents, you know, so that they can communicate with each other so that they know that he's okay or, you know. Mm-hmm. send pictures, something, you know, some kind of communication. Yeah. That would be nice. I think I told you the people across the street, their son is thinking of adapting because uh, his wife couldn't get pregnant the second time. But I t- make, tell them to make sure they get an open adoption. She says, you can't get anything but an open adoption today. Good. Good. We're finally got someplace. If Mitch had felt the same way, do you think that the two of you would have had sex? No. Mm-mm. I don't think I would have let that happen. Why not? Because I would have lost him for good. <laughs> it's wrong. And I would have lost him. There's all kinds of temptations in this world. And uh, you got to fight them. Because society doesn't accept that. They're hurting. So if society didn't frown on sex between relatives, would it be okay? Not with me, no. Mm-mm. If you felt that way about your mother, would you sleep with her? Would you have sex with her? No. Why not? Because there's a gut reaction that I couldn't get over. All right. Same thing. You'd never get over that. You'd know it was wrong and you'd never be able to live with that. You can't make something right out of something that's wrong. It's still gonna be wrong. And I know brothers and sisters that are living together yet to this day, but they're telling everybody they're just living together as brother and sister. And as if you're smart, you'll keep it that way. Don't even bother telling them. A lot of people think, oh, they're just so close now that they met, that's really nice, you know. But they're, they're having a sexual relationship. They're living together as husband and wife. In fact, I think I know of one that even had children. That would scare me, having kids, you know, because it's the genetic components aren't always the best. I don't think it's wise. Who am I to say you shouldn't, you know? It's not my life, it's your life. That's the only way you're going to get through it. It's the only way you're going to get through it. You can't say it's right, but how can I say it's wrong? I think most people would have no problem saying that it's wrong. No, I'm sure they wouldn't, <laughs> because they don't feel it. <laughs> it's never happened to them. Yeah, if something's never happened to you, it's easy to say it's wrong. For myself, when I hear of a father molesting his child, you know, a little kid, you know, that's 14-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 3-year-old, I think, what is the matter with this man that he has to do this to a kid? So I don't know if that's even considered the same thing as genetic sexual attraction. I think it's just they're over sex, period, and they just want to deal with somebody that's little, that's helpless. You know, that's that's how I take a pedophile as being, I don't know, we got one down the street here, poor guy. <laughs> that's scary. You know, why are they that way? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's wrong, but I can't judge that because it's not my job to judge. I feel it's between them and God, not me. <laughs> I feel sorry for him. I really do. Barbara's son, Mitch, did not share her sexual feelings, and their relationship became increasingly uncomfortable. 
Mitch did not want to be identified, but agreed to tell his side of the story to Linda Brown, a Chicago psychotherapist who had 20 years' experience of dealing with GSA cases. I didn't feel it because this is a biological mother. Oh, my God. Well, I don't remember his voice sounding that deep. Yeah, well, they, they pitched it down to this. Wow. And so once that word mother enters into it, what's your next thought? I want to sleep with her? I mean, this just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I remember. I don't remember this at all. The question I would raise is if it, it genetic sexual attraction sounds like there's something genetic in there, there's something chemical, there's something inborn. If it is, does it skip generations? Because I didn't feel it. I was surprised by the way he described the hug. Well, she tried hugging me once, you know, and she cried and cried and hugged and hugged. And I was probably felt a little stiff about that. It seemed very cold. Yeah. It just it didn't ha it didn't register on me other than I don't like this. Uh, don't do this again. I met him when he was 26. So I didn't know him for 26 years, but I knew him for over 30 afterwards. We grew old together. <laughs> we just kept in touch, you know, and when he got married, he would bring the kids over and with his wife, and he would tell them, this is Barb and this is Bob, but he would never tell them, you know, who I was. He didn't tell them who I was until right before he died. And his kids were in their teens. And he said, I'm tired of this BS, and he said, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them who you are. And I said, you don't have to. He said, I'm going to tell them who you are. And that's when he was in bed dying. I wanted to go and see him at the hospital, and his wife advised me not to. She says it'd be easier for you not to see him. I guess he was in pretty bad shape by that time. Mm -hmm. His brain cancer, he probably wouldn't have remembered me anymore anyway. Mm -hmm. you know. But I was hurt by that. I wanted to go and see him. And I didn't realize he was that close to death. So I never did get to go and say goodbye. I felt I should have gone. I should have gone. No matter what, I should have gone. The memorial service. That stands out in my mind a lot. His father was downstairs greeting people. And I went up to him. And I looked at him. I said, do you know who I am? He said, no. I said, I'm Barb. He says, Barb, you're Barb? I've wanted to meet you for so many years. You have no idea. We talked for a few minutes. And then I said, well, I have to go. And I started to walk away. And as I was walking down the hallway and I looked back at him, he was going, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that just choked me up, you know. And every time I, I can still see that man's they sang, thank you, thank you, thank you. Then I went upstairs to meet his mother. I was shaking. Because <laughs> he wasn't my rival. She was my rival. Went up to her, and I said the same thing. Do you know who I am? She said, no. I said, I'm Barb. Oh, uh-huh. She said, you know, I, I know he was always meant to be mine. I said, you know, he probably was. Do you feel satisfied? Do you feel like you were able to say what you wanted to say? Well, I wish I would have been so have been able to say it when he was alive instead of after he died, you know, because I would have liked liked to have, you know, spent some time with him and gotten to know them and and just say thank you so much, you know, because he had a great life and I, I couldn't ask for better parents for him. So uh, I just walked away and I've never heard from him since. Probably never will. I want you to know you're the last interview I'm doing. 
Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell anymore. Why not? Well, for one thing, I don't remember so many things anymore. It's just enough, enough words out there, enough things to read now, and I think I'm through. It's getting harder and harder to remember the incidents anymore, you know, without rereading my book every time somebody wants to interview me, because it's just, it's all starting to fade away. They say it's the early stages of dementia, whatever that means, but I think they say that about everybody that's, you know, and when I talk to people at church, they're all around my age, and they all say, I got the same problem, I got the same problem. Everybody has a shorter memory as they get older, you know, but... I say, I just get so annoying because you think, oh, geez, why did I forget? How could I forget that? How could I forget this? But you do. It just goes away. I'm still getting people writing to me and just still saying that the feelings are there and they're glad I wrote the book and you know, I'm glad I did and I'm glad I'm open and I'm glad I was able to get in front of a camera and make a jackass out of myself at times. <laughs> but sometimes you have to do that. And if you're asking, did I do anything about it? No, I didn't. I'm just telling you what I felt. For those poor people that did go ahead and do the things, there's paying for it. It's costing dearly. You find that the older you get, you realize you pay for everything you do. When God made the earth in the first place, he put rules down. You don't live by the rules. You pay the price. If you read the Bible, you find out that everybody paid the price. When I stop and think about the condition the world is in, and it's in bad condition, we're breaking laws all the time, breaking rules all the time, and that's why it's so bad. All we do is murder each other, kill each other. Everything is terrible. The world's a time bomb. It's waiting to go off. I think Trump's in there for a reason, because he's, he's in to destroy the world. And I think he's going to succeed. This is why it's going to end. The Bible has said that from the beginning. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world is going to be restarted again, and it's going to be replenished. How will I be judged? <laughs> I don't know. It's up to God, not me. I don't know. Do you have any guesses? No. No. That's it for Love & Radio. This episode was produced by Stephen Jackson. Love & Radio is produced by Jesse Carrier, Stephen Jackson, and myself. We are a production of PRX's Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia's founding sponsor is the Knight Foundation and made possible thanks to the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. We often get emails from you guys asking about different songs that have been featured in the show. So I just wanted to remind you, that we post playlists of all the songs that you hear up on our website, loveandradio.org. We also have transcripts of most of the episodes up as well. Check it out, and thanks for listening.
Give your life, give your life. 